Hello everyone and welcome to the Building Brum Podcast. I'm your host Connor Nolan and I'm going to be chatting with professionals from all over the built environment, looking at new projects, new themes and the changing trends across the construction industry. We're broadcasting from Birmingham and exploring the construction industry, planning sector and architecture and design community within this new series. Just some of the topics we're going to be discussing across the new series include projects being developed, looking at new construction methods for housing and exploring the future of the workplace. I'm going to be talking with architects, developers, planners, engineers and many more professionals from across the industry who have a story to tell and knowledge to share. Big thank you to our Building Broom series supporters, Reality Capture and Point Cloud modelling specialists, Scantech Digital and Solus, one of the UK's leading suppliers of commercial flooring and wall tiles. Today I'm being joined by two special guests to discuss smart cities. Stephanie Eastwood, Associate Director at Avison Young and Vice Chair of the RTPI West Midlands, and Luke Hilson, Barton Wilmore Design Director and Chair of the RTPI West Midlands. We're going to be looking at how cities are evolving to meet the changing demands and lifestyles across the UK and the world. Hi Steph, hi Luke, how are you both? Very well, thank you, how are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. How are you Luke? Hi Connor, yeah, very good, thank you very much. Thanks for having us on today. Not at all, thanks very much for um, taking the time to uh, join me. Um, Really wanted to hear from you both and talk about future cities in regards to not only Birmingham, but future cities all across the, uh, all across the world. Like, what's really interesting to me right now is the idea that what you're working on and what you're planning, I want to know how that's changed in the past eight months compared to where you were and how you were working and what you were planning 12 months ago in a, in a pre-COVID society. I mean, what what does future cities now mean to you, Steph? Um, thanks, Luke. I suppose um, just setting the context, um, cities um, are are kind of growing at a pace um, across the world. Um, the population in our urban areas is is expanding rapidly, and it's set to expand rapidly over the next next few decades. Um, but I think. Um, and, and they're always changing and um, that's evident through the kind of way that our cities have grown and developed over the years and um, and every every different part of the world has has had their cities grow in different ways but as a result of, of covid and the, and the experiences we've all been going through in the last um, six months or so um cities are kind of changing faster and, and having to evolve and um, faster than they will ever have had to have done before um, which presents um, growing challenges for us as kind of planners, designers and built environment professionals in terms of how we think about the way that they they grow and change um, at, to the better um, in terms of sustainability um, how we how we live in our localities um, and, and improve the quality of life of, of residents of urban areas but also um, incorporate technology in a, in a positive way um, within our built environments. Um, so, so what do you see is the, that, that, that biggest that change in, in what you see as the priority in terms of future cities now compared to like we said that pre-COVID era and what's what's really gone to the forefront what, what's the most not- noticeable difference? For me um, it, it's that focus on the quality of life and, and equality of access to services, facilities and green infrastructure and the things that we, we value and, um, and kind of have a positive impact on the way that we live our lives. Um, 
and I think there's been a, a focus on the way that we kind of live within our, our neighbourhoods, perhaps um, in a slightly different way than we were six, seven months ago. And um, it's kind of placing an emphasis on, on being able to, to access services, facilities um, and open spaces um, within a kind of a, a walking distance of where you, you live. Um, and there certainly seems to have been um, a lot of talk about kind of the, the 15 minute neighbourhood concept and, and, and how we make our neighbourhoods more compact so that you can um, get around them easily um, and have access to your, your healthcare facilities, your education, your work and um, your kind of social life all within a, a relatively confined area. And that has benefits for our, our quality of life but it also has benefits for kind of sustainability and reducing carbon emissions and, and thinking about how we might couple, uh, tackle some of the, the climate change challenges that, we, that we're facing. Where do you start to influence those types of changes? Is it the conversations that you're having with the developers? Are you talking with the architects? Is it the local authorities? How do you get from, how do you take that, that clear need to kind of push forward this change to to help people and help 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 cities to grow. How do you, how do you implement that? Where does it begin? For me, I suppose as a starting point, it's understanding. And um, as we work, it, we're we're not kind of starting it fresh here. We we we're working with the environment um, that we've got in our cities already, and um, and so we will almost be having to try and retrofit some of these concepts within our cities. And so I think as a starting point, we need to. Um, try and gather a better understanding of, of um, how individual neighbourhoods within our cities work and, and where those whether there are inequalities in terms of access to um, facilities and services and that kind of could be a starting point for, for planning where there might be um, um, disadvantages um, within certain areas and thinking about um, how we, we, we tackle them so it's, it's understanding the baseline um, and, and once you've understood that baseline, where, 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 where do you come into this loop? Where, how do you, how do you yeah, push it forward? Um, it's definitely right, Connor. It's really important to keep the human experience in mind throughout all of this. And I agree with what's been said that this isn't anything new. In terms of the COVID-19, it's, it's in effect acted as a catalyst um, and it's sped up where we were always going to go and where we were always going to get to in terms of um, focus on sustainability, focus on accessibility within our local neighbourhoods. Um, if you just consider the kind of flexible working from home environments that we're now all used to, we're always going to be working towards a, a remote and flexible working system. It's just that that meant that it sped, sped it up much quicker. I think what Stephanie's saying is, is absolutely correct in terms of health and well-being has, has been a key focus. Um, but now the spotlight is is firmly on health and well-being, um, sustainability and accessibility. And we've seen lots of talk recently about the 15-minute neighbourhoods and, and some have been calling it the 20-minute neighbourhoods. But ultimately, it's still the same urban design ethos that we've been striving towards for years. And that is to create a neighbourhood, a village, a city, a town where everyone's daily needs can be met within easy reach. And whether or not that easy reach is um, sustainable transport options, whether or not that easy reach is active travel so people can cycle and walk there, what we need to do is we need to ensure that people's daily needs can be met conveniently. Um, and I think that's what this COVID-19 has shown. With people working from home, 
homeschooling, homeworking, um, recreation has been, been confined for many to, to those real local areas to them. And people have started to see that actually, yes, this is great. I can walk and cycle to everywhere that I need to. Or conversely, some have found the opposite and they've seen that they can't walk or cycle to anywhere that they need to. They can't get to the supermarket. They can't get to the places that they need to. And we need to start to instigate that change. And much like COVID-19 has instigated this rapid rate of change, we need to respond quickly as well. So like Steph said, we need to be embodying all of these design principles at the very outset of all of these projects. So as you say, design director at Barton Wilmore, the projects that we're seeking to push forward now, at the very, very start of the project, we were already thinking about health and wellbeing principles. We're thinking about sustainability and accessibility. We're thinking about um, equity, um, making sure that everyone you know, has got accessibility to everything that they need to, to in effect, to live, work and play. Now, are these priorities, are these, these conversations that you're having with local authorities up and down the country about the future of their cities, are you being met with the same, same response, same everyone being open-minded and wanting to embrace this new future? Or are you finding there's resistance and there's the kind of people are looking for the reassurance of the traditional ways of how they've always lived? How, how, how are you finding this is, this is being met? As you might expect, Connor, it, it varies between authorities and it, it varies between stakeholders um, and it varies between developers, those building out these places. But ultimately, most people that you speak to within the built environment world want to create great places. They want to deliver good places. They want to deliver good places for people. And that's true to the house builders, the developers, the local authorities and other stakeholders. They're all keen to create great places. No one wants to create bad places. But as you said, some just have more um, reservations or some require more reassurances than others. And ultimately, it's down to consultants like myself and down to consultants like Steph to demonstrate that these proposals are deliverable and that they do achieve the goals that, that they set out to achieve. Steph, can you tell me, what's, what's, what's an example of like one of the most proactive, forward-thinking local authorities that you've worked with that really been able to drive through and embrace this, this change and this new way of working and living? And... Well, I live in Birmingham, so I'm going to talk about it from a where I live perspective, actually, rather than kind of a, a practitioner's perspective. And um, just thinking about the way that the city is responding. And, and one, of the, one of the kind of areas I think that, that the Birmingham has placed a particular emphasis on is is thinking about our um our access to sustainable modes of transport so um cycling and um and pedestrian accessibility within our um individual kind of centers so um Birmingham already had a massive um program of, of activity in place around encouraging um and improving the cycle network um with uh, in the last year or so um the, the new kind of cycle super highway into city centre having opened up and then um, over the last six eight months or so the, the level of activity on that cycle route just from my own observations is, has been um it's, it's gone up considerably and um, but then it's also encouraged um 
the local authority to think about the way that we use our, our, our centres and to improve the, uh, the pedestrian and, and cycle provision available available to us all. So I think the city has taken a, a, a proactive approach in, in responding to the situation that we're facing. But it's then how do we um, build that in and continue to kind of maintain the, the impetus as we as we move forward. Um, Birmingham, um, th- there was a really interesting um, website that I came across called In Your Area, where you can look at um, where how accessible your particular area of the city is to lots of different services and facilities. And it, and it showed that the kind of, it, it does vary considerably, actually. And there are some parts of the city which are compact and, and, and have really great access to services and facilities. But there are others where actually there's a, there's a quite a significant deficit and it's it's using that information and that data to inform our forward planning, decision making and investment priorities to, to make the city uh, a more usable and, and equitable place to live. I see what you're saying. And what I want to know is where do we if you take Birmingham as an example, how do you feel Birmingham kind of stacks up against the, the Parises and the Amsterdams and the other European cities that are very they're so good at that where they use the way they use cycle lanes all the different methods of public transport how do you find that Birmingham kind of fits into that where, where, where does the city stack up against them I think um that some of those European cities have had have taken a very very proactive approach to improving their cycle and sustainable transport networks um, and they they started that process a number of years ago and um, so some of them kind of have had a head start um, but it really shows the importance of having kind of a, a clear vision and leadership and there's one example that jumps to mind is, is kind of Copenhagen um, who set themselves out to be um, a green city and a cycle city and over the last couple of decades, their, their focus has been very much on building cycle infrastructure within within the city. And they set really significant ambitions in terms of the, the level of cycle usage. So about 50% of people in Copenhagen would be cycling and commuting to work. Um, and, and that was a, an ambition they set out some time ago. So I think for me, it's about being proactive and, and setting ambitious goals um, and then kind of building the investment and, and the plans around those to, to deliver those um, vision and ambitions, really. Yeah. And in addition to that, Connor, um, agree with you, Stephanie, it, it requires a cultural shift. Um, not only does it require the, the physical infrastructure in place in order to be able to facilitate the cycling and the cycling uptake, um, it needs to be convenient to people. It needs to be attractive to people. So people are not going to cycle to work if they haven't got showers at work, for instance. People are not going to cycle to the supermarket if they can't park their bike outside. So this, the, the physical infrastructure needs to be there, but the, the cultural shift also needs to take place to make to make cycling, to make walking more attractive than the car. We need to make buses and trains more attractive, more comfortable, more convenient than getting in your car and I think one of the smart cities um, aspects that we've seen recently particularly post-covid is is with regards to the the apps for the trains so I don't know if you guys have got a train recently but it will tell you on there you know the carriages are congested or the carriages are not congested it's not working that great but with more information with more technology with more smart 
uh, throughout the city. I think increasingly we will get better real-time information. And that's really, really important. It needs to be real-time, instant information. It needs to be shared um, and it needs to be decentralised so that more people can benefit from it. And I think exactly like Stephanie was alluding to in, in Copenhagen, more information um, on uh, cycle lanes, more information on when the next bus is going to be, more information on when the next train is going to be. Um, and then the interconnectedness between those multimodal transport options uh, is, re is really, really important. And I think only when it becomes comfortable, convenient and attractive will we see that shift from the private motor car across to uh, more sustainable motor transport. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, we're, we're, I suppose people talk about us entering uh, and, and being within a fourth industrial revolution um, where we need to really harness the power of technology um, to, to find efficient <clears throat> and affordable solutions which help us to resolve some of the, the kind of urban uh, challenges that we face. So I think you're right. So a data could be um, one important aspect to, to creating that culture shift and facilitating um, the kind of more sustainable behaviours that are, that are going to help us to, to have sustainable cities that, that work and, and are able to grow. Can you give me an example of how, how are certain cities taking advantage of technology and, and the use of data to, to achieve this? Stuff? I mean, I, I understand with what Luke's saying in terms of kind of that, that the sharing of information in terms of when the next, when the trains are, when the buses are, information about, about public transport. But what else, what else are cities doing in terms of using, using data? There's quite a few examples and there are some kind of, um, cities which have set themselves out as, as kind of new smart cities um, across the, the world, particularly in, in developing areas. But one example that, that I'm aware of is, is in Singapore, um, where there's been a, a real emphasis on, on transforming Singapore into, into a smart city. And, and they've kind of, um, they've come up with a, something called Virtual Singapore, which captures a whole ream of different data um, including information about the way that people are moving through spaces um, and using public transport, also using the private car. And um, they, they've created um, like an open source data platform that has a, that's based in a, in a 3D model. Um, and it allows people to access that information and the local authority to use that data to, to manage spaces efficiently, but also to inform um, decision-making um, in terms of, where they might be improving um, pedestrian and, and cycle um, connectivity, um, but also looking at um, uh, kind of climate change resilience and, and our, uh, where we might be able to install renewable energy within our cities. So, um, for example, I think one of the projects in Singapore is to be looking at the built environment and where that might provide opportunities to build in uh, solar panels and, and uh, clean energy generation. Um, and I'm using that, that kind of, data framework to, to, to support innovation um, in the built environment and, and retrofit that technology in. If, if, if you took that, what Singapore are doing, you look at, say, two areas in Birmingham, you've got the pedestrianisation of Colmore Row and the regeneration of Digbeth. And that way of that big data, that using that new technology, would, 
would those schemes would it be appropriate to look at the implementation of of those that those types of technology that Singapore is using on schemes like that, especially with with Digbeth, because they are regenerating the whole area. Being able to get that insight into how to incorporate sustainability and, and solar and and all all the different methods straight into the um, regeneration scheme would, would would it be suitable to look at that? I think um, one of the challenges that we have is is how data is captured in this country and and how it how it's shared um, uh, here as opposed to some of those other countries um, where they've they've like say created an, an open source data platform where information is is shared and is is freely and publicly accessible um, and, and whilst there is a lot of information and data that, that, that is shared in that way in this country i'm not i'm not sure that the um kind of te- technology infrastructure and data infrastructure is there for us to to use it in in that way um at this point in time that there's there's um, kind of a, a shift in that direction most certainly um, and I, I've seen um, a, a rapid rate of increase in terms of the amount of digital tools that are available to us including 3D models of our cities that we can use to um, kind of visualise new developments and, and show um, what what schemes would look like and how they would integrate into um, our cities but I, I think it's a it's, we can learn lessons but it's it, we, we, there's still a, a long way to go, I think. Yeah. Connor, I mean, what I'd just like to add is, is sometimes that the best schemes are the simplest. And like Stephanie says, you can have citywide and regional smart cities, which are fantastic. But sometimes the, the simplest initiatives are, are really, really effective. There's, there's one example of a, of a hospital in England, a rehabilitation hospital, where they were really struggling to get all of the walking sticks back from their patients who used them and then invariably wouldn't return them. What they did was very simply put a GPS tracking chip in each of their walking sticks, which meant then that after the the six, seven, eight weeks of, of using them, they knew exactly where they were with this patient. But the additional thing it gave them was data. What it could then tell them is how many steps each of those patients took on which days of the week, what the weather was like when they were doing it, how far they walked, where they walked to. So sometimes very, very simple interventions mean that they could collect all of that data, which was very useful in treating the patient, but it had the the advantage of making sure that all of those walking sticks got returned at the end of the trip. So I think we need to remember that these smart city initiatives can be very, very simple and very localised in addition to very high tech and, and kind of cross-regional city level initiatives. Yeah, there's uh, some examples of that. Just to build on our kind of things like smart street lighting and, and having lights that are responsive to uses usage within the area. So you've not got street lighting on unnecessarily causing light pollution, but also um, using electricity in areas where they're not needed, but that they, they come on automatically when the area is used. And that, that's something I'm aware of they've been using in, in Barcelona um, and similarly it, another example from Barcelona is that the, 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 the city council authority there had installed um, smart parking sensors to help people to to find spaces within city centre and whilst um, we should all be kind of encouraging a, way, a shift away from car usage in city centres the, the benefit that that had in Barcelona was that actually a significant amount of traffic in Barcelona is from people 
um, looking around and uh, moving at slow speeds, trying to find parking spaces. So it actually has a, a significant kind of air quality benefit um, and, and traffic reduction benefit. So it's, it's relatively, like Luke says, there can be simple solutions that we could think about in, in, in innovative ways. Thanks. Thanks very much, guys. Um, thanks. Really, thank you very much for joining me today and, and kind of discussing smart cities and, and what the future is for both cities across the UK and what other cities across the world are doing. Really, really interesting. Thank you, thank Connor. You. Thanks, you, All the best. Take care, guys. Thank you. thank you. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to the Building Brum podcast. Subscribe to Building Brum on Apple or Spotify and join us again where we're going to be chatting with new guests every month, finding out the latest news, themes and trends taking place within the construction industry. Thank you once again to our sponsors, Reality Capture and Point Cloud Modelling Specialists, Scantec Digital and Solus, one of the UK's leading suppliers of commercial flooring and wall tiles. To find out more about our Building Brum partners, visit the Building Brum website. Thank you very much for listening and take care everyone.